the world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layer timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the update for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagic-design.com What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. And in this episode, we wrap up our interview with Norman Holland. We're going to talk about Heather's, as well as his favorite guilty pleasure film. Now, if you're in the Toronto area, I'm going to be hosting a discussion with Daniel Resende, who cut City of God, Tree of Life, as well as currently editing Robocop. So, make sure to check that out. You can uh, go to AOTG.com and you'll see a link uh, on the right-hand side. But, in the meantime, enjoy my interview with Norman Holland. So, building a relationship with the directors is key, and you're also trying to get on the page stylistically, creatively. In a film like this, there's a very specific style and approach to the film, yeah. and one that, at the time, the the audience hadn't really seen, and many films have attempted to imitate since. So, how did you and Michael Lehman work together or develop a relationship so that you could sort of get on the same page for this film's style and story. Right. Right. That's that's a great way to look at it. Uh, it is a process of getting on the same page. So first, it starts back in the interview process. So when I first was given the script, I was like, damn, this, this script is really interesting. Can the director pull off this world? And then his agent, who I knew through my wife, actually, slipped me a copy of his USC thesis film. Uh, he had been to USC, though it certainly meant nothing to me at that point. Uh, she slipped me a copy of the film, and I looked at it and said, man, this guy knows how to build a world. Mm-hmm. Get me in. I want to interview here. And so that was a little bit of our discussion having to do with the world. And he said something was either then or right after I was hired. I think it was during the interview, because both of us felt that... Um, this was the anti-John Hughes movie. Uh, and that's the actual description that we talked about a number of times during editing. So what that, what that implies to me is a whole series of what is John Hughes does. How does he shoot? Uh, how does he cut? How long does he spend on people? How, do his, how does his comedy work? And uh, so, you know, you go and you look at 16 Candles and you say, okay, how could we make this? feel like that, but twisted. Mm-hmm. And obviously this was in the writing, the world in that, that Dan Waters created. And so when I went to cut a scene, I would try and choose to take where the performances felt like, no, there's nothing odd whatsoever about these odd things we're saying. What's your damn it, Heather? Or, you know, fuck me gently with a chainsaw should come out as if they say these things all the time. Selection of those takes become, yeah, John Hughes wouldn't stop twice to think about a, a teenage expression as it's in his mind, so we're not going to stop and call attention to that most ways. And because Michael is a great collaborator in that uh, we shot here in Los Angeles, I was cutting in West Los Angeles, I would go to the set frequently. In fact, I ended up 
directing the second unit on that film because I was on set so much that they just kind of knew me. So I would show Michael cuts and get feedback from him while we were still in the process of shooting. And that helped point me in, in the directions that he wanted to go. So it was the first project that I did with him. We had to learn each other's language. And, and uh, the way that I put it is, as editors, we're chameleons, and uh, we need to be able to crawl up inside our director's heads and figure out what's there and help to adapt the movie towards that as much as possible. So that was a process for me. The opening cafeteria scene it mm-hmm. plays a very important role in that it set, sets up such a large group of students uh, with varying right. roles in the student hierarchy that are going to sort of come forward later on in the film how did you approach the scene in the editing room and i was wondering how many revisions or how many restructuring uh, cuts you had to do with this with michael oh well let's see um if i remember correctly the ultimate structure is more or less uh, what was scripted. So the way Michael shot it, for instance, is he would find people in the lens. And he knew this. He wasn't really finding them. But he would allow the lens to find people, follow them, and they would lead us to the next, and to the next uh, group of kids who we were going to follow. So... Some of that was inherent in the shoot, in the blocking and the structure of the shoot. Uh, We did a lot of versions of the film, and a lot of that had to do with pacing and also uh, our first cut, uh, when we took a look at it, both of us, I think, really liked it. But I remember thinking, my God, this is great, but you hate the Veronica Sawyer character, uh, you know, Winona Ryder. And we certainly didn't want the audience to hate her, We wanted them to empathize with her. We wanted them not to approve of anything she was doing, but to go like, wow, I can understand how she got there. So we spent a good three or four cuts after that balancing that out and removing lines of dialogue that made her seem bitchier or made her seem less acted on. We created a whole new balance between her and the J.D. character, the, uh, uh, the Christian Slater character. So he became more manipulative of her, uh, and we felt, you know, that whole first death scene, we recut a lot of ways so that, uh, hey, should she notice the cup with poison in it? Should she not notice the cup? So I know I'm getting away from your question about the first scene, but uh, I just kind of want to put it in perspective that a lot of the work that we did had to do with uh, pacing and with broader strokes about when do we get inside her head. So like many movies, you want to get to the big inciting incident more quickly. And, and that was sort of the arrival of J.D. and uh, uh, her agreeing to partner up with him. So a lot of that introductory stuff became shorter rather than restructured very much, just became tighter. Now, when we talked about your book, The Lean Forward Moment, you talked about all the departments sort of helping build this one story or helping play a role in the story. And yeah. in this film, there in the very opening scene, it's sort of this dream, it's a dream. And then we get into the cafeteria and it still has that dream-like quality. Did you, was that intended from the the point of view of the editing room or was it just something that happened with the cinematography? Oh no, that's absolutely intended. Um, uh, you know, Francis Kenny was the DP on that. 
and I would talk literally every single day. Mm-hmm. So that uh, because we were capturing on 35 mil as opposed to file base, he couldn't necessarily see everything as it came it came in. So I would get the dailies at 8 a.m. the next morning, and we would usually talk by 10. So he would say, so I sent you this really cool shot today. You know, what do you think of that? So we would talk style a lot, and we would have dailies every single evening where he, the uh, production designer, John Huntman, uh, myself, a number of other department keys, the producer, Michael, uh, would come and watch the film, uh, watch the dailies from the day before. And that actually gave us an opportunity to talk about some of the transition devices, to talk about uh, uh, the approach to the film. And the fact that I was on set so much also helped as well. So um, I think all of that's intentional. The opening dream sequence, the croquet sequence, was something that we actually shot much later than original principle, though I believe it was in the script in some form early on. And so uh, that first cafeteria scene, I think, helped inform the attitude that we wanted in that opening scene. Now, you, you talked about having this sort of gathered group meeting for the dailies uh, and screening mm-hmm. them, and that's disappeared. Yeah, it really has, yeah. So what do you recommend for your students? Because I can remember my first moment of watching dailies and learning a huge amount from the way the director, editor, cinematographer all sort of work together for the story. Right. So what do you recommend the the students do nowadays since that sort of relationships disappeared? Yeah, it's really a shame. Um, There are a number of ways that I recommend and still do if you happen to be in the same city as where they're shooting, which also is changing as well. Um, What I like to do is I, if the director lets me, I like to go to rehearsals. Mm-hmm. So I don't say anything during the rehearsals. It's not my job to talk there as the editor. But I observe what the director is doing, the adjustments that he or she will give the actors. I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of directors who have come out of the theater. So they do some very theatrical improv stuff that they then return, you know, they improv the unwritten scene that comes before the scene they're rehearsing. And then at a certain point, they go on book. And then at the end, they go off. So that helps me understand what emotions the director would like to begin the scene with. If you're observant during the rehearsals, I think you learn a lot in terms of that crawling up inside the director's head. I like to screen scenes with the director. So I'll send it to him. And often, if I can, I'll bring it down to set with me. And we'll go into his trailer and watch it. And so I get some feedback. I get to look at his or her eyes and uh, kind of interpolate from there. I like to go on tech scouts. So I, and then I do talk. So I get to hear where the director is going. You know what? We're going to bring in tight. So you don't need to light behind me here. You can do, we're all going to be playing this direction and follow this guy in tight and play it in close singles here. And I may say, you know what? The last two scenes in the film, we've been on those locations and you felt the same way. Is that the way you want to go? Do you want to be in tight for three scenes in a row? And the director's answer will help me a lot. Uh, the director's answer may be, yeah, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Get out of my face. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I learn 
that there's a certain close claustrophobic feel that he would like at that point on, um, or that she really wants to be building through at that point. So those are the kinds of things I like to do. I will also, not a lot of directors like to do this depending upon their time availability, but I have sometimes made a big long memo with every scene in it. And just, I kind of spew my guts about each scene. Uh, and I'll go, um, well, wouldn't it be really cool if we drop back to the widest uh, possible right before this moment uh, and then pow, come in real tight for the action. And I'll, or I'll say things like, I don't really understand this, this moment. What's it scene supposed to do? And I don't really care whether the director likes the comments or not. If they say that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard, I've learned something. Mm-hmm. If they say, well, that would be great to do, but the location simply doesn't help me do that. I've learned something. Mm-hmm. If they say, yeah, I'm going to think about that. And then when I see the dailies for that particular scene, I noticed that, yeah, they didn't do it exactly the way I had in my head, but look at what they did with that comment. I learned something. So I just have to learn in different ways. Directors, it's so hard with the complexity of shooting nowadays and how much they're being asked to shoot every day and the juggle, uh, the VFX and all those other things. It's so hard to get them to focus intelligently on dailies that I'll kind of grab whatever input I can in any way. Oh, and by the way, the other thing I say is never underestimate the power of beer. (laughs) So if I can say, hey, where are you guys going to be after your shooting when you plan for tomorrow? And sometimes I'm just a fly on the wall. Sometimes I actually bring a cut of something and then we'll play it for everybody. Sometimes I'll just be able to grab 10 minutes uh, with them. But that combined with going on set, combined with just being observant, really gets me to a place where my first cuts are better than they would have been otherwise. And then obviously once a director comes in and we start looking at the first cut, that's when you learn the most. For Heather's, it it walks a fine line between edgy, funny, and accessible with mm-hmm. tragic, dark, and uh, my wife's term is sociopathic. Um, <laughs> so like how do you approach such a challenging subject matter like teen suicide in a manner that's sort of tongue-in-cheek or humoristic, but is still relevant and accessible for the teen audience without alienating anyone? Well, frankly... We weren't concerned whether we didn't alienate or alienated people or not. Now, we only had two public previews on that. And um, the first one, I remember the numbers were pretty horrible. There were some people who were huge, huge fans of the movie and other people who hated it. And uh, frankly, I would rather be working on a movie where lots of people love it, lots of people hate it, and you know, there isn't a large group of people in the middle. I would prefer that than a movie where people go, yeah, kind of good. Okay, good. So we didn't spend a lot of time worrying about uh, whether we alienated people or not. I would say that uh, what was important to us is establishing the style and the tone of the film pretty quickly. So you pointed out the one about the dream and the transition into the uh, lunchroom, the lunchtime poll was written so we could spin around and meet everybody in the lunchroom. Uh, So by the time we got to the meeting with JD in the cafeteria, you were either on board or you weren't. And that's the movie we wanted to make. It was 
what, a $3 million film. So the studio was behind it, as long as we brought it in under three mil. So I don't think that that was major concern for us. We just wanted everybody to really understand some movie that we wanted to make. I have one last question, because I know I, I don't want to keep you too late, because okay. I have a meeting. And that's, yeah. what's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? <laughs> I should have thought about this ahead of time, shouldn't I? Because I know you do that for everybody, right? Well, this is, I don't know if this exactly qualifies as a guilty pleasure film in the same way, but that I remember the very first time when I saw a movie that Dennis Hopper directed called The Last Movie, and it just sucked me in. Uh, and every, pretty much everybody else who I speak to about that movie thinks it's horrible. They don't understand why I, why I liked it. Um, it's, it's a movie, Dennis Hopper uh, directed it, and he plays a, uh, a guy who uh, is on a location shoot. He's a, an animal wrangler on a location shoot down in South America uh, for this Western, this like cheesy Western with gunfights and everything. And uh, he stays behind when the crew leaves to go back to the United States because he's fallen in love with, with someone from the town. And the town goes berserk, doesn't understand that it's a move, that there was a movie that they saw shot and starts emulating that movie to the degree where they start shooting and killing each other and, and all. And it's just a weird, bizarrely styled and bizarrely made movie. And every time I talk about it and people look at me crazy like, you like that movie? I feel a little guilty about that. <laughs> so I don't think that's exactly what you mean when you say guilty pleasure, but uh, it is it is definitely a movie that um, meant a lot to me when I saw it, and when I saw it again years later, too. It's not a great movie, <laughs> but I really loved it. Now, I wish we had more time to talk about Heathers and your other work, but uh, hopefully we mm-hmm. can do more in the future. That would be great. I'd uh, love to go in. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. So that was my interview with Norman. Unfortunately, Lauren couldn't be with us this episode, so she's going to join us next time. Remember, there's the job posting still open for the two USC teaching positions. So make sure to check that out. You can go to AOTG.com and there's a link along the top for it. Give it a shot. See if you can get in. Hopefully you will and let us know. Just send us an email. You can always contact us, info at AOTG.com. You can get us on Twitter, at Art Guillotine. Of course, Facebook, facebook.com slash Art Guillotine. And of course, as always, make sure to check out that post show. They've got some great shows coming up. You can always rate us on iTunes. So go to iTunes and look for that post show or look for The Cutting Room. Give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. This way we can improve our our ranking in iTunes. That's going to be The Cutting Room this week, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'd like to thank Norman Holland. I'd like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.